Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In our new series, Modern Parables, we're going to be taking Jesus' parables and transposing them into a modern setting. Each week, we will read a parable or narrative from Jesus' life in the Gospels, and then I will tell you a story. These stories will be fiction, just like those that Jesus told. The goal is for you to listen to the story and then draw meaning out of the story in the same way that Jesus expected his audience to draw meaning out of his parables. I hope you enjoy. Our scripture in reading today is Luke 7, 1 through 10, and this is when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Capernaum. And it says, After Jesus had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and to heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed, for I am also a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you who might be new or haven't been here for a while, we are doing a sermon series entitled Modern Parables. Each week, we take a parable or a narrative from Jesus' life, and then after reading it, I tell you a story. These stories are fictional, just like the ones that Jesus told during his lifetime, although I'm basing my stories on real people and real events that I'm then transforming around to fit the narrative. And all through Lent, we are reading from Luke's Gospel, the narrative that leads us to Jesus' death and resurrection. After each of these stories, I will not give you any explanation as to what I want you to take away. You simply listen to the story and compare it to the narrative, and hopefully that will give you a sense of what I want you to take away from the text and what I think is underneath the text. So, you ready for our story today? All right. Our story today begins at the International Cycling Union headquarters in Agile, Switzerland on May 13th, 2011. The International Cycling Union, also known as the UCI, is the organization that oversees the sport of professional cycling. And on this particular day, the UCI, they were gathered together in a boardroom for a hearing. This hearing had to do with allegations that the top cyclists in the world at that time, a man by the name of Alberto Martin, a Spaniard, had been using performance-enhancing substances in order to win the 2010 Tour de France. Now, Alberto, as he sat there in the UCI, he was waiting to be called into the boardroom, and he knew that on the other side of that door, there was a mountain of evidence waiting to convict him and destroy the career he had worked so hard to build. Not that he felt particularly bad about using performance-enhancing substances. 
Everybody on tour used them. What he felt bad about was the fact that he had been caught. It was his fault. He had been sloppy with the use of his drugs, and what had happened is, is that they had found a unit of blood that was infused with various types of drugs, ethylprotein, otherwise known as EPO, testosterone, human growth hormone, cortisone. They were all in there. All these substances are banned. And as a result, he was looking at having his three Tour de France titles stripped from him. He could hear that they were arguing on the other side of the door. He didn't know exactly what it was that they were arguing about. But he couldn't help but feel that they were partially responsible for him being in this situation. They were the ones who benefited from all of his hard work. They were the ones who got to sit in an office and collect a paycheck because people all around the world love to watch him perform superhuman feats of athleticism. There are not many people in the world who are able to pedal up a mountain so steep that cars will often give out under the strain. The sport of professional cycling is perhaps one of the most challenging and difficult sports in the world. The toll it takes on the human body is unlike any other endurance sport. Let's take the Tour de France as an example. The Tour de France is a cycling tour that takes place every year in France over a period of 23 days and covers a distance of more than 2,200 miles. That averages out to about 100 miles per day on a bike, which is absolutely insane. It would be hard for us, the people in this room, to get on a bike and go 100 miles in one day on a flat road. These guys are out there, they're going 100 miles a day at top speed on roads that follow the contours of the Alpine Mountains. Now, these mountains, they're all different steepnesses, right? I don't know if that's a word, steepness, whatever. Different, different grades, yeah, there we go, that's another one. Uh, and they have categories. The category goes from four to one. Four is the easiest, right, which for us would not be very easy, and one is the hardest, although there is a level above that. It is a level that's called beyond categorization. They're called hors category. There's always one in every Tour de France race. And what that means is, is that it's so hard to bike on this that a car technically can't make it through the trail. The highest one that they've ever done was 9,000 feet above sea level. That's how high they were. Now, if you're going to compete in the Tour de France, it goes beyond that of mere physical fitness. If you're going to be pedaling that hard on mountains that are that steep, you have to have a heart of steel. No doubt about it. And it takes a real toll on the human heart. Let me give you a sense of what happens when you are bicycling that hard for that long. So, when your heart is deprived of oxygen when you are exercising, it produces a stress hormone in your body. And that stress hormone causes your blood pressure to go up. And that blood pressure, it puts a lot of strain on the walls of your heart. If you've ever done exercise before, you have felt this. And it's what causes you to want to stop exercising <laughs> when you feel it, right? Because you get to the end and you say, well, I'm done. That, that feels good, right? And you have to work to get beyond that. That's the whole thing is you keep training, you get a little bit more endurance, and it helps you to get stronger. 
Now, when it comes to these guys who do the Tour de France, of course they've been training to up their endurance level. But you have to realize that when your heart is beating that hard, it can actually put a lot of strain on the inner lining of your heart. It can cause it to become inflamed. And over a long enough period of time, it can actually cause scar tissue to form around the heart. Let me give you a sense of what happens after the 100 miles of one stage of the Tour de France. Usually what occurs is that your body is so starved for oxygen and nutrients that your muscles and tissues stop working well. And your body goes into a shutdown mode because essentially it wants to try to recover from all of the trauma that has just been induced. And so the difference between the person who's going to win the Tour de France and the person who's going to lose is the recovery time. The person who is most refreshed for the next 100-mile stage of the journey is the person who's going to prove the victor. It's pretty simple. And this is where performance-enhancing drugs make the biggest difference. You have to understand that performance-enhancing substances, they don't all work the same. They're different depending on who uses them and how you use them. For instance, let's take a football player. A football player, what do they want to do? They want to be strong on a field so they can overpower their opponents. So they're going to use steroids, right? They're going to use steroids. They're going to go to a gym, they're going to use these steroids, and they're going to pump iron to get bigger so that they have more muscles, so that they have explosive power on the field to overcome their opponent. But when it comes to cycling, you don't want to be big and bulky, do you, on a bike, you know, trying to go along? Like, if you're super muscular and you look like Schwarzenegger, that's going to weigh you down, isn't it, right? No, you want to be thin and spelt. You want the muscle you have to work longer. And so you need the right combination of drugs to allow your body to get the necessary nutrients and oxygen that it needs in order <clears throat> to work for an extended period of time. Now, unless you as a biker happen to have an intimate knowledge of human biochemistry, chances are you're going to need a doctor to help you do this. And in the cycling world, there was no better doctor to help you dope than Dr. Michelle Ferrari. Now, you might know this guy. You may have heard of him before. Michelle Ferrari is the one who helped Lance Armstrong from 1999 to 2005 win an unprecedented seven Tour de France titles, of which he has been stripped. Now, the reason why Ferrari was so good is because not only did he understand how to work with a biker's biochemistry in order to get the best possible results from the drugs, but he also knew how to cheat the UCI when they would come in and do the drug tests in order to see were you actually doping in the midst of the competition. And the way that he did this was through blood transfusions. So Alberto, what would happen is he would get finished with a stage of the tour. He'd go either to his bus, sometimes out of travel, or to his hotel room, and he'd come in and there'd be an IV pole of blood units waiting for him with clean blood. They would transfuse the clean blood into one side, and out the other side, they would take the dirty blood that had all the drugs in it. This way, if he got tested, there would only be clean blood in his system. Then the next day, when they're ready to go back out, they would transfuse the dirty bud back in with the drugs in it, readjust the drug levels, and Alberto would be ready to take off for the next leg of his tour. Amazingly, in 2007, when Alberto won his first Tour de France, he did so without the help of any performance-enhancing substances. At the age of 25, he was in the best shape of his life, 
genetically gifted beyond just about anyone in the world. He was able to go on those mountains. He had seemingly endless endurance. And he had hopes after winning that first one that he was going to be able to beat Lance Armstrong's record drug-free. He comes back in 2008 to defend his title. And another Spaniard who he knew, a man by the name of Carlos Sastre, gets up there and destroys him. And Carlos, of course, was using performance-enhancing substances. And this is the point at which he felt cheated because he realized that if it was a head-to-head match between him and Carlos and there were no drugs involved, he would have won no problem. But if he wasn't using the drugs, he couldn't win. And this is when his pride got the better of him and he gave Ferrari a call. And from the moment that Ferrari started working with him, he was doing great. He was back on top of the cycling world. Won the 2009 Tour de France. Won the 2010 Tour de France. But then something happened during the 2010 Tour that he hadn't anticipated. After stage 13, he goes back to his hotel room. There's Ferrari. He's waiting with all of the IVs with the, with the blood units, and they're doing the transfusion, and Ferrari gives him a sedative in order to help him sleep. And then Ferrari leaves. He goes out to his van to grab something, and in the midst of this, the chambermaid comes in and asks Alberto, can I take any trash out of your room? Do you have anything? And the sedative had started to kick in, and he pointed to a bag, the wrong bag, and it happened to be a bag that had some of the dirty blood in it, the blood with drugs in it. So she takes it, she leaves. Now what he didn't know is, is that the UCI had become suspicious that he was working with Ferrari, and so they had said to all the managers of these hotels where he was staying, we want you to save all the trash that's in his room. Do not throw it away. And so they had exactly what they needed. They had one of the bags of blood. It had all of the drugs in it, more than enough evidence to convict. And he was thinking back on this when he was sitting at UCI headquarters, and he was thinking if he had just pointed to a different bag, he wouldn't be in this situation. Well, they call him into the room. He comes in. He sits down next to his lawyer. And the, the chairman of the board begins speaking to him. He says, you know very well that we have more than enough evidence to convict you with this. You know that we took that from the hotel. And we know that it's worth your, not worth your time to even contest the charges. So we're willing to offer you a deal. If you give us everything you know about Ferrari and his connection with Armstrong, then we're going to give you a lesser fine. What we'll do is we'll strip you of your 2010 Tour de France win and give you a two-year suspension. If you don't tell us about Ferrari and you don't tell us about his connection with Armstrong, then we're going to strip you of your 2007, your 2009, and your 2010 titles, and we're going to ban you from the sport for life. Now, clearly, after hearing this, he knew they were more concerned about Armstrong than they were about him. And so his lawyer leans over and he says, take the deal. (laughs) So for the next six days, he's deposed and he's giving testimony about Ferrari, how he does the drugs, how he brings them in, how he's able to cheat all of the tests. Then he talks about what he knows about the connection with Armstrong. After the six days, he gets on a plane and he flies back to Madrid. Now, while he's in the air, the UCI holds a press conference and they talk about the sanctions that have been posed against Alberto. When Alberto lands, he's got six messages on his phone. The first five are from his sponsors saying that they're dropping him. The last one 
is from his teammate saying that when he's done with the two-year suspension, he's not welcome back on the team. Alberto had become a pariah in the sport of cycling. Nobody wanted to touch him. So for the next two years during his suspension, he's determined that he's going to get back on top. He's training. He's doing the best that he can. He's going out there and he's trying to stay in top physical condition. And his agent is calling around. He figures there's got to be some team in Europe that's willing to take him. But nobody wants him. And the answer is the same every single time. They come back and they say, oh, he's an amazing cyclist. One of the best in the world, no doubt about it. But it's the fact that he testified against one of their own. And it's not like the European cyclists liked Lance Armstrong. They were more than happy to watch him go down in flames. But what they didn't like was the fact that he had testified against them and that ultimately most of the European cyclists, the top cyclists, had used drugs at some point in their careers and what would be to prevent Alberto from turning on them. Another year goes by, still nothing. And eventually, he's at the point where he's realized he's going to be forced into retirement. And his agent was about to call a press conference to announce his departure from the sport of cycling when he gets a phone call from Frankie Landis. Frankie was the captain of American team. And he says, hey, I want to offer you a top spot on our team. And he's got to think about this for a second because, you know, Alberto, he doesn't exactly want to go to America. America has a certain stigma in the cycling world, primarily because of Lance Armstrong. And if he ends up taking the opportunity and he goes, they'll realize how low he sunk. It's like going to Siberia. That's the kind of the idea, right? But seeing that he has no other options, he takes the deal. Packs his family on a plane. They fly to Colorado. Frankie's team trains in Colorado in the mountains because of the altitude training. They're able to be really high, and of course, when you're in the mountains like that, it gets you ready for the Tour de France. And Frankie sits down with Alberto and he says, look, the reason why we want you is because we believe that with you, we can actually win the 2015 Tour. We believe that we can do it. And the fact is, we want to reclaim some of the dignity that we lost because of Armstrong. So we want you to do your best and we want you to come back and we want you to make this happen for us. And this was big. Because when Alberto saw this, he realized, well, this was a chance for him to reclaim some of his respect, some of his dignity, and he could help the Americans along the way. So he begins training with them. And from the beginning, he feels sluggish. He's not quite where he should be. He's in the middle of the pack, or he's falling behind. And at first, he thinks, well, maybe this is because of the climate. He's not used to being in that altitude. He's used to training in Spain. And so he's wondering, well, maybe I just need to get used to it. I'm not used to the winters and the summers and how it all works. And, and then eventually he realized, no, it's not the climate. There's something else going on. So he goes to a doctor. They perform dozens of tests. And they come back and they tell him that what they've detected is that on the inner lining of his heart, there's some scar tissue forming there. And they estimated that the reason why was because in the 2009 and 2010 when he was doping, Ferrari gave him drugs that allowed his heart to work so hard that it had caused that scarring to form. And now that it was about five years later, that scar tissue was starting to harden and it was preventing his heart from oxygenating his blood at peak capacity. So Alberto, he goes to Frankie and he tells him the bad news and he says, look, I'm just not going to be of any use to you. With this condition, I just, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to keep up with everybody. He goes, but if you 
let me use some kind of performance-enhancing drugs, I could probably do it. <laughs> and Frankie was livid. He was like, no, under no circumstances will you nor anyone else on this team use any kind of drugs. We are trying to get out from underneath the shadow of Lance Armstrong. And if there is even a hint of impropriety, then we're not going to be able to gain back a lot of the respect that we are trying to restore, the faith we're trying to restore in the American public in the eyes of cycling. And so, he says, if you really need to use drugs, if you feel that way, then we'll cancel your contract. But I want to tell you that I brought you here because I believe in you. You won the 2007 Tour de France without any drugs at all, and you can do it again. You are one of the most, if not the most, genetically gifted biker in the world. But the fact is, you got to believe in yourself, and you have to train, and you have to believe that you can do this. You can do it again. You are still among the top bikers in the world, even with this medical condition. The question is, are you willing to work hard, and are you willing to try to make this happen? And Alberto, he was just really in shambles over this, and he said, I just don't think I can do this. I'm sorry. And Frankie says, well, how about this? I believe in you. So can we start with that as the foundation and build from there? He says, all right, fine, we can try. So they go out and they start training. They have eight months to the tour. And for the first three months, Alberto just looks horrible. He's, behind, he's last on almost all of their rides. It doesn't matter whether it's a sprint, endurance, a mountain climb, he's just not with them. And every day he's going to Frankie and he's saying, I just want to quit. I, d I don't think I can do this. And he says, just keep trying. I believe in you. Five months out, they are going to have a session with a sports mechanics expert. And the sports mechanics expert, they come in and they're riding on bikes and he's checking out all of their form because he wants to make sure they're in top form. And immediately, he comes and he's drawn to Alberto and he sees Alberto on the bike and he's looking at him and he goes up to him and he says, has anybody ever told you that you have a slight scoliosis? in your spine, and that it's starting to become worse with age, and it's affecting everything you're doing on the bike. It's affecting the way that you're breathing. It's affecting the way that you're pedaling, and he said, you don't need surgery. You just need a chiropractor to kind of realign you, and that should probably help. So Alberto, he goes to the chiropractor. You know how they crack your neck and all that stuff, so, you know, they crack your neck. He gets into alignment, and he goes out there and he starts training. And it's like he's a totally new biker. He's got his energy back. He's getting the oxygen into his body. And they're going on these rides, and he's actually finishing first. And they go on a mountain climb, and he destroys everybody. He's got energy to spare, and he keeps going back and getting more adjustments, and he keeps feeling better to the point where it seems like a victory is not so far out of reach. They get on the plane. They go to France. They're getting ready to do the tour, and it's clear that he's among the top three riders, that he's going to be right up there with them. And so they start the tour. They start going, and he does very well. He wins a couple of the mountain stages, and he's right in the mix. And it comes down to the last stage, because these guys have traded places. They're going between first and second and third, and it's coming down, and they are gunning it the last 100 miles. And it gets down to the last 50 and his body just can't handle it. 
he's breaking down and they just take off because these guys that he's going up against, they're doping. And so, of course, they can stave off the exhaustion much better than he can. And so they go in and he ends up getting third place. Now, he felt cheated because he thought, you know, if it was head-to-head, I could have beat him. I could have done it. But his teammates were ecstatic. They were cheering. They were so happy. He didn't entirely understand why they were so happy, but they really were. And that night, they have a banquet. And they all get together, and they're just, they're really happy. And, and Frankie gets up there, and he gives a speech. And he says, you know, we have come a long way. We did this whole thing drug-free, and if it had been fair, I guarantee you, we would have won. And then Frankie calls Alberto up. He says, Alberto, come up here. Come up here. And he gets him up to the front. And he puts his arm around him. And he says, but none of this would have been possible if it wasn't for Alberto, who proved that it's never too late to have faith. And then he gives Alberto a big bear hug. And as he's hugging him, he whispers in Alberto's ear. And he says, just so you know, you never had scoliosis. I paid him to say that. <laughs> Amen. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.